Hi, I'm Jarrett Murphy, and this is 112BK. Coming up, not one, but two Muslim women will join the next U.S. Congress. It's a first. A local organizer talks about mobilizing the Muslim vote. I think the stakes are very high. You know, we see an administration that is literally trying to ban Muslims from the country, uh, that's trying to exclude us from public and civic life, and it's sort of part of a broader white nationalist agenda. And then, Brooklyn played no small part in the midterm election outcome. Two local reporters weigh in. The Democrat usually does pretty well in Brooklyn, but Rose did extraordinarily well in Brooklyn. Yeah, so much so that whatever happened in Staten Island, he could sort of live with. Hi, welcome to the show. Just ahead, two local reporters give us their take on the election results, the Brooklyn contribution, and what the statewide outcome will mean for the borough. But first, last night's results were notable for a number of reasons. For the historic turnout, for the record number of women who won congressional races, for African Americans who, for the first time, have representation in the federal government equal to their share of the population, and for the progressive, LGBTQ, and Muslim candidates who won. To talk about this last item, we're joined on the phone by Mohammed Khan, the campaign director at Brooklyn-based Empower Change, the country's first digital grassroots Muslim organization, which played a big role in getting out the Muslim vote across the country. Welcome to 112BK, Mohammed. Hi, thanks for having me on. Two women were elected to Congress yesterday for the first time, two Muslim women, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. That's major news. What's the significance, not just for Minnesota and Michigan, but for the nation as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I think the election of not only two uh, Muslim women to Congress, but two pretty boldly progressive Muslim women like Rashida Tlaib and Elhan Omar has really important implications, I think, you know, for us and the work that we do in Muslim communities across the United States. First and foremost, we see it as a rebuke of the politically charged uh, Islamophobia that we've been seeing from the Trump administration and from kind of folks across the political spectrum. I think along with their election, we saw a few other candidates who were either staunchly Islamophobic or ran on anti-Muslim platforms. You know, in Michigan and Minnesota, we had folks like Bill Shewitt and Doug Wardlow who uh, lost their campaigns. And I think what we're starting to see uh, across the country is that there is an increasing political cost and political price for Islamophobia. Specific policies like the travel ban, do you think that that helped to energize voters? I think it's policies like the travel ban and just also the the very open anti-Muslim rhetoric that we've been seeing from politicians all up and down the ballot. What do you think the impact of your campaign, hashtag MyMuslimVote, what, what role did that play in these races? Yeah, so our MyMuslimVote campaign, you know, we didn't particularly support uh, or oppose any individual candidates or parties, but we really just wanted to encourage Muslim folks across the country to get registered, to get engaged, and and get excited about voting. You know, one of the things that we heard from Muslim voters back in 2016, time and time again, was they were really tired of the way that politicians on both sides of the aisle kind of put them in this very narrow box of talking about national security and things like that. And we really wanted to encourage our communities to vote aspirationally, so think about what they're voting for, not just what they're voting against. So we encourage people to have a conversation around what their mindless vote was for. So we heard uh, folks talking about voting for things like racial justice, like uh, protecting the environment, like funding for public education, and really kind of the broad range of issues that 
that U.S. Muslims care about. And we work with our partners across the country to register thousands of people to phone bank tens of thousands of, of Muslim households. Uh, we did a bunch of canvassing in a few key states and really got folks in the Muslim community, some of whom had either never participated in the political process before or had been kind of inactive for a few years to really think about the importance of their vote, think about why they're voting, why it matters for them and for our communities at large. And we saw, especially here in Brooklyn and South Brooklyn, we saw record-breaking turnout in the Arab Muslim communities. And do you think that played a role in the uh, Max Rose upset victory over Dan Donovan? Yeah, absolutely. Both in the Max Rose victory and the Andrew Gennardis victory, if you look at the turnout and the way that certain electoral districts voted, you'd see pretty significant increase in the districts that are heavily Arab and heavily Muslim, and those tended to go uh, for the Democratic candidate in both of those races. And we saw over the past couple months, you know, particularly Arab Muslim women really taking the lead in, in organizing folks in that community and, and getting them out to vote. Recently, your uh, executive director, Linda Sarsour, reminded everyone why this year is so important uh, for Muslims. Why is that? What's, what are the stakes? I think the stakes are very high. You know, we see an administration that is literally trying to ban Muslims from the country, that's trying to exclude us from public and civic life, and it's sort of part of a broader white nationalist agenda that's seeking to exclude black and brown people from, you know, public and civic life in this country. And that agenda is coming not only from the White House, but we also see locally, you know, State Senator, uh, now former State Senator Marty Golden, his staffer Ian Riley was one of the folks responsible for bringing the Proud Boys to the Metropolitan Republican Club uh, in Manhattan. We, I think, Many of us saw the videos of them afterwards beating up protesters and kind of uh, rampaging around the streets. And, you know, folks like former state senator Marty Golden have supported Trump's white nationalist rhetoric and white nationalist policies. And now they're going so far as to actually, you know, stand by as, as white nationalist vigilante violence takes place in our city. And I think what we saw last night here in New York and here in Brooklyn was a, a very strong rebuke of that sort of silence and support of these, these very harmful policies. So very quickly, just 10 seconds left, what's next for your organization? Uh, you know, I think everyone kind of has their eyes on 2020. We see folks starting to gear up their campaigns for that. I think, you know, we just really want to remind folks that there's an increasing political price for Islamophobia, and, you know, we're going to make sure the folks who don't treat our communities fairly uh, feel the price of that at the ballot box. Well, Mohammed Khan of Empower Change, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Election 2018 might feel over, but it's not. A day after the election, a number of races in New York and elsewhere are too close to call, and a number of candidates who appear to have lost haven't conceded as of tape time. But we already know the general outcome of the voting. Democrats will have control of the New York State Senate for only the second time in half a century, and they won control of the U.S. House for the first time in a decade, although they lost a little ground in the U.S. Senate. A couple races right here in Brooklyn helped shape those dramatic results. Here to tell us what happened, why, and what it might mean for the borough are Paula Katinas of the Brooklyn Eagle. Welcome to 112BK. And Julianne McShane of Brooklyn Daily and the Brooklyn Paper. Thanks for joining us. So an exciting election day uh, around the country and including here in Brooklyn. Uh, I know you were out kind of pounding the pavement. Uh, what were you covering yes. yesterday? What did you see? I was at Marty Golden's uh, what was supposed to be a victory party for him that turned out to be a 
a not such not so much a concession uh, event for him. It was fascinating to be there. It was at the Bayridge Manor, a large catering hall. And as the evening wore on, the mood grew a little bit more somber among the supporters that he had as the reality set in that he was not going to win. Somber, Paula, or angry? I wouldn't say angry. No, one or two people might have expressed some anger, but I would say it was more somberness and a a, um, a, a quiet resignation. Surprise? Yes, I think people were surprised. I think a key moment uh, from last night that I think set things in a bad direction for them from their point of view was the Rose Donovan race. Uh, There was a giant TV screen at the t- at the uh, st- the uh, front of the catering hall that was tuned to New York One, and when those results came in, and when uh, particularly when Dan Donovan conceded, it just it was almost as if air was being let out of a balloon in that in that room, and I think people started to perhaps realize that this was not going to be a good night for local Republicans. For viewers and listeners who might not have tuned in yet to election results, Max Rose is the Democrat who took out Representative Don Donovan, a Republican in Staten Island and part of Brooklyn, and Marty Golden is the veteran senator who's represented a Brooklyn district since 2002, defeated by Andrew Gennardis. Those were the two big storylines of the, of the night, I'm assuming, Julianne. Yeah. You know, I think that both of these races sort of were almost a referendum on not just local Republican control, but also on Donald Trump in a way. Both of Dan Donovan and Marty Golden, you know, had aligned themselves with Donald Trump. And that was a race that really split, especially Bay Ridge back in 2016. It's it's this increasingly changing neighborhood that had elected Republicans and that had been represented by Republicans. Before Dan Donovan, we had Michael Grimm. We've had Senator Golden in there for 16 years. But especially since the election, you've seen more local civic groups and more people being more politically engaged in general and really pushing to try to elect Democrats and try to flip these seats. So these elections weren't just referendums on the incumbents, but they were referendums on larger Republican control, I think. Yeah, we had a conversation with one of those groups by phone earlier in the show. I'm curious. That's interesting, actually. (laughs) These neighborhoods are changing. All the city is changing all the time, especially Brooklyn. Do we think this election reflects new people? or new attitudes, folks that maybe weren't voting before but now are, folks that voted for Trump but have changed their mind. Any sense of that? I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, A Republican operative told me a couple of weeks ago that they were starting to get concerned about Marty Golden's chances because they recognized that Bay Ridge has recently, in recent years, had an influx of folks from Park Slope. People who are priced out of Park Slope who can't afford apartments to live there have been moving into Bay Ridge. And those folks tend to be Democratic, leaning toward being progressives. The, the entrenched uh, Republicans were moving out or, or aging and moving into retirement or what have you. So there was concern there. And But then again, I also think that, that maybe there were people on the sidelines for years who did decide to vote this year. Did the Park Slope people come in a caravan? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> no, there's no sign of that, but yeah. And I think, you know, Senator Golden has been marred by a lot of scandals this past year. You know, a a lot of his controversies date back to voting against marriage equality in 2011. He's come under fire from his constituents for a a while, but, um, you know, especially in the past year, sometimes it seemed like the the scandals or the the negative instances coming out of his office with staffers that he had to fire for racist, for remarks that constituents called racist or for his own gaffes, it seemed like these these scandals were near constant. And so I think it was a, a combination of sort of changing attitudes attitudes from the voters. And Gennardis's campaign really did try to focus on turning out and registering new voters who hadn't been voting before. We're speaking about Senator Golden in the past tense, but officially, at least as of this moment when we're taping, he is uh, still a candidate in the race. He has not conceded. 
Is there any legitimacy to his argument, uh, Julianne, that, that he might hang on? Well, yes and no. So um, we think that there is about 1,400 absentee ballots left to be counted, according to the Board of Elections. Golden is saying there's 3,000. We don't know where that discrepancy comes from. There's less than 5% of scanners that still have to be counted. But those scanners are in areas where it kind of could go either way. There's a couple in Bay Ridge. Gennardis did win Bay Ridge overwhelmingly by more than double. But it's also Golden's home turf. It's the area that he's represented for 20 years. Um, there's a couple in uh, Diker Heights and I think in Gravesend, and Golden did take those neighborhoods. So, you know, it's a toss-up in a sense, but Golden would have to make up 1,100, more than 1,100 votes to secure the win over Gennardis, and that is unlikely, I think. But right, I don't mathemat- see them... Mathematically possible, right, but not likely. Right, exactly. And either way, I mean, this is Andrew Gennardis ran six years ago, ran what was considered like a feisty race, but he mm-hmm. lost by... 9,000 or more votes, right? So more no matter, than 10,000. No matter yeah. what, yeah. Uh, he has, um, if not officially knocked off Golden, come come within a hair's whisper of it. And that certainly means the change of an era, it would seem. Definitely. It, it, it does feel like the end of an era in, in Bay Ridge politics. We talked about some of the things that were on uh, voters' minds, that this was kind of a proxy for the national conversation about the president. In that context, as you covered debates or speeches by the candidates, start with you, Julianne, were there significant issues where they differed that are actually going to be acted upon in Albany, or was this a totally nationalized conversation? No, there were definitely uh, significant local issues. I think one of the most prevalent was their differences on the speed cameras, the citywide speed camera program. Gennardis obviously supported that. Golden did not, and his own driving record came under scrutiny and controversy. He had racked up, I think, six speeding tickets within the past two years, and then another six parking violations. They also differ on the Child Victims Act. Golden supports a fund to compensate victims um, of childhood sexual abuse who come forward with their claims. Gennardis supports the act, which extends the statute of limitations. That was certainly a hot button issue uh, among the, among the constituents in the district. And then they also differ on the New York Health Act, the um, single payer universal health care. Gennardis supports Golden doesn't. So, you know, again, I think these divides were really reflected in the district. You have homeowners who had been living there for many years. A, a lot of those people in the more southeastern parts of the district, Midwood, Marine Park, Manhattan Beach, make up Golden's base. And then you had, you know, Gennardis' supporters. I think a lot of the a lot of the people among those were were younger, more progressive people. But I also spoke with people who had previously supported Golden, who said that now that Golden had been under fire and under the microscope so much this past year in the press, they had started to pay more attention to the issues, and they had aligned themselves with Gennardis. One of those lives across the street from Senator Golden, a neighbor. You know, you had people that had had ties, longtime ties to Senator Golden, who who decided to make the switch. So I think you know their their different takes on these issues kind of reflected the the differences among their constituents. Paula, what do you think people in Brooklyn, now that this has occurred, right, not only has apparently Andrew Gennardis defeated Martin Golden, but the Senate is now in Democratic hands, the New York State Senate. You have a Democratic governor. Everybody else is Democrat. What are they expecting Democrats to deliver for Brooklyn? What are the things that matter to people that they're going to want to see once we get past the politics some concrete action on, do you think? I think definitely health care protecting people with who have pre-existing conditions, codifying some sort of response to what is going on in Washington. 
abortion rights. I think people will expect them to act on that. The governor came to Diker Heights during the summer and absentially was talking about the speed cameras, but he also mentioned making sure that New York protects women's, a woman's right to choose, no matter what happens in Washington, given the new makeup of the Supreme Court. I think those are the two things. And then Brooklyn being Brooklyn, though, I think it's also, you know, kitchen table issues or local issues. They want their potholes fixed. They want their street lights working. They're, they want, um, you know, Golden was famous for summer concerts, which some, I think, scoff, sort of scoffed at. But a lot of people enjoy those concerts. And it's, it's, a, it's a pleasurable experience for them. And it, it is, they are funded with state money. I think people might want, still want some of that. They, they might want Andrew artists to kind of pay attention to those things as well. Among professional advocates leading up to the election and today as well, there's talk about what is Albany going to do about some of the mechanics of democracy itself, you know, early voting, uh, reform to campaign finance. I'm curious, do you think that kind of thing matters to folks on the streets, uh, you know, whether it's going to be easier to go to the polls, whether there's going to be less or more money in politics? I think it matters to them uh it will only matter to them for a short while. While the memory of their having to stand in a line for two hours to get to a scanner that doesn't work and having being handed a paper ballot, I think they're still angry about that. And they will be for perhaps a couple of weeks. But I think that memory will fade for them and I, of the average voter. And I, I don't think it's going to be we, something we that... Should, you know, we should talk about that because that was kind of a big sub-storyline on election day was people having problems at the polls, yeah. broken machines, lines... Did you get reports of that in in Brooklyn, and how extensive uh, did you hear it to be? I, w- I was seeing online on Twitter um, reports of issues in Bay Ridge, um, people waiting, you know, a couple hours to vote. I, I wasn't on the ground so much experiencing it myself. I don't know if you could speak to what I, you saw. I wasn't actually covering that part of it myself, but my colleague Mary Frost was right out there covering. It. There was there were a lot of trouble. There was a lot of trouble. There were a the lot question of problems. Is, did people have to wait in line and get angry, or did people walk away? and not vote because they ran out of time to. It seemed like they waited. Okay. It seemed like they waited and, of course, got angrier and angrier as the time went on. I wonder if it changed their vote. Yeah, they were determined to to (laughs) vote. Exactly. (laughs) They were determined to vote. And uh, but still, it was an aggravating experience for a lot of people. I know that the borough president is talking about uh, pushing for changes. And I think the changes, I think someone like an Andrew Gonardis will also push for some positive changes. I'm just one. I just don't know if the average voter, if, if they will stay as angry as they are now. Speaking of average voters, pivot to the Rose Donovan race, you know, fascinating contest. And I'll admit that I did not think Rose was going to win, and he he did fairly decisively. The knock that Donovan's people tried to make against him was that he was an outsider. Did people see him that way, and did that matter, do you think? I think he used that to his advantage. I mean, I think, you know, if you saw that he put out a campaign ad maybe a month or so ago where he said, where he was really trying to appeal to, you know, Republicans or to those middle of the road voters, he was saying, you know, de Blasio acts like Staten Island doesn't exist. Everyone in Washington has to go. The whole establishment has to go. So I think, you know, he was conscious of the fact that this was a Republican stronghold for so many years and he was coming in as a Democrat. And, you know, I think he he knew that he could be confident of the support that he would get in Bay Ridge. As we said earlier, that neighborhood is increasingly changing and you've seen, you know, a push of, of younger and more progressive voters. But he still had to win over Staten Island. And I think he, he used that sort of outsider status to, to win over enough votes to, to be successful. And Paula, speaking of the district kind of being split between Staten Island and then this sliver of, of Brooklyn, it looks like the Brooklyn sliver was essential to Rose yes. winning. Oh, definitely. 
Definitely. The Democrat usually does pretty well in Brooklyn, but Rose did extraordinarily well in Ran Brooklyn. Those up. Yeah. yeah, so much so that whatever happened in Staten Island, he could sort of live with. And as it wound up, you know, he did very well in Staten Island, too. I know you guys cover Brooklyn, not Staten Island. What I wonder is this is a district that's actually, actually kind of bounced back and forth, right? We yes. had uh, Vito Vassella, we had Mike McMahon, we had Michael Grimm, Dan Donovan, now a Democrat in. I wonder if this suggests a, a stable kind of change of directions for Staten Island and maybe this part of Brooklyn, or if this is going to bounce back and forth in the future. What's your guess? I don't think I can speak to Staten Island, but it seems like this is a change that is here to stay, at least, you know, for now in Brooklyn. It's It seems like, like I said, there's this influx of, you know, not just younger and more progressive energy, especially in Bay Ridge, but people just generally seem to be more civically and politically engaged in this neighborhood, especially after the 2016 election. And of course, we've seen that play out across the country, more people registering to vote, more people getting involved, even running for office. Um, but, you know, uh, some of these debates between Gunnardus and Golden that we covered, um, you had rooms packed with hundreds of people. And, you know, you had people knew who they were voting for. And so and that's I, new that that wouldn't have happened two, four, six years ago, you think? I think Paula can speak to that better I think, than No, me. I think she's right. I, I, I totally agree. There is a different kind of energy. And also, I just want to, I guess, give a shout out, as it were, to um, Bay Ridge's Arab American community. Because mm-hmm. I, I think when when Justin Brannon, who was the Bay Ridge City Councilman now, when he ran and won in 2017, he he fir- before winning the general election, he won a, uh, a Democratic primary that had a lot of candidates. And one of those candidates was a, a local Palestinian minister named Kader K- Elyatim. And I think Elyatim kind of galvanized and, and, and it really um, attracted a lot of young Arab Americans to his campaign. And I think even after that primary, they stayed involved. And they uh, changed their allegiance to Justin Brannon and, and worked for him and, and got him elected. And that, that energy still ha- it hasn't dissipated. It's still there. And it's very impressive. And I think they, I think Andrew Gunnaris, um owes uh, quite a lot to them as well for that victory. Speaking of civic engagement, obviously on the back of the ballot or on the back of your fourth page, depending on where you lived, were these ballot questions. They became a subject of some interest because of editorial boards saying vote no, the mayor saying vote yes, in the end, yes won overwhelmingly. Were people talking about those? Did people did people know what they were voting on, do you think? Um, in terms of the community boards I cover, I cover, or I used to cover um, Sunset Park, Bay Ridge, and Coney Island, and I think the the community boards really seem to kind of reflect the makeup of the neighborhood. You know, Sunset Park, they've made concerted efforts to try to get younger people on the board and to try to make the board more involved in the community. Coney Island, it seems to be kind of a a stagnant group of people who have been there for a while. There's not that much efforts to make an outreach. Bay Ridge seems to sort of fall between the two. I think the, the, the range of board members, I think the youngest board members 19 or 20 and the oldest is like over 80 and you know so so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in yeah, this Denver. is just for for the uninitiated viewer this is question three which imposes yes. term limits on community boards for the first time i'm sure you've covered community boards too yes uh what do you think the impact of term limits will be oh i think it's going to devastate the local boards in a way as juliana says there's a lot of uh community board members who've been there for years Years and years on end, and uh, they're going to have to change now. I know it's—I believe it's a two—a win- two-year window. They—they mm-hmm. they would have to leave after a, a few terms, and then after a two-year window, well, they can come be back. Devastating to them personally, or will it actually hurt the power of the boards? Do you think their ability to advocate for the neighborhood? Uh, I don't know. That that still remains to be seen. I think one place where it might hurt them is in land use issues when boards have to vote on recommendations over what to do with a piece of land. 
I mean, I mean, I know experts are coming in, I believe, that might be part of the charter revision as well, to allow experts to come in and help the boards. But I think a lot of these boards and these, these members who've been there a long time, they know land use from, you know, head to toe. And they, they're very well versed in it. And you might be losing some of that expertise on these boards. But at the same time, it, it might be fun and, and interesting to see new board members crop up here and there. One, one uh, little side note that I, I wonder about is um, community board district managers, the, the paid employee of the board, they are hired by board members and they work at the pleasure of the board. And I wonder how this is going to affect right, board them. Board changes, will that change Yes, too? exactly. I wonder about that. So the elections are over, or, or as soon as Marty Golden concedes, they will be. But obviously, there are political stories out there that will affect Brooklyn. Uh, Paula, starting with you, what's next sort of on your plate? What's the next story we should be looking at in Brooklyn? I'm wondering what the, the uh, state Senate elections, what effect those those elections are going to have on two very high-profile state senators, Simka Felder and Diane Savino, whose district is mostly Staten Island but does come into Brooklyn. It takes in parts of Bensonhurst and uh, takes in much of Coney Island. Uh, she was a member of the Independent Democratic Conference, uh, that group that sided with Republicans in the and Senate. And Simca is the guy who and Simca the Republicans the guy that, in charge. You know, yeah, exactly. That's a good so story. I'm Julianne, wondering where that's going to go. What's on your agenda? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the southernmost tip of uh, Brooklyn, Coney Island, changes. They they just elected a new assemblywoman after um, Pamela Harris resigned and was indicted uh, and was recently sentenced to six months in jail. So, you know, they just elected Matilde Frontis, who has tried to prioritize, you know, also engaging new voters and engaging more people in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, she has she was born and raised in that neighborhood. She uh, spent her career working as a social worker. So she she potentially has the tools to really sort of dissipate some of the the challenges facing that neighborhood in terms of gun violence and, you know, increasing poverty and, and maybe make that the next sort of neighborhood to watch. Those sound like great stories. I can't wait to read them. Thank you so much, Paula Katinas from the Brooklyn Eagle, Julianne McShane from Brooklyn Daily and the Brooklyn Paper. Well, tune in for those stories. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you very much. Now, we wanted to take a look at some of the more notable ballot initiatives that passed or didn't around the country for what they say about the trends or contradictions. As we discussed earlier, New York City passed all three of its measures, campaign finance reform, community engagement council, term limits for community boards. Florida amended the state constitution automatically restoring voting rights of felons after they completed their sentences, a seemingly progressive measure in a state where progressive candidates didn't fare so well. Louisiana voters approved a new state constitutional amendment that would require unanimous rulings by juries in capital cases. Yes, right now, that state can kill you if only 10 out of 12 jury members give their say-so. Michigan, Colorado, and Missouri all approved ballot initiatives to end political redistricting. California denied a ballot measure to roll back its gas tax and vehicle fee increase, voted no by 55%. Utah, Idaho, and Nebraska approved Medicaid expansion ballot measures, all conservative states which now want what Obama tried to give them years ago. Arkansas voters will raise their $8.50 minimum wage to $11 an hour by 2021. Missouri voters will raise their $7.85 minimum wage to $12 by 2023. San Francisco voters approved Prop C, a hotly contested measure that will charge the city's largest companies a marginally higher tax to help fund homelessness initiatives. Michigan legalizes recreational pot. So does North Dakota, which will expunge records of individuals previously convicted for possession, 
but they also threw out their Democratic senator, Heidi Hempkamp. I mean, Heitkamp. Massachusetts keeps transgender rights. That's novel. Baltimore voters banned water privatization. Portland voters agreed to address the inequities of pollution and climate change with the Portland Clean Energy Community Benefits Initiative to combat environmental racism. But just to the north, Washington voters rejected a carbon tax, which would have been the first such initiative in the country. That's okay. We've got plenty of time. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Brian Vines will be back and in conversation with New York City's first nightlife mayor. You don't want to miss it. Woman 2 bk is hosted by Ashley Ford, but hosted by me, Jared Murphy, today. It's written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Naim Van, and Emily Bogosian. It's recorded by Eric Haugesag, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario, and it's edited by Mira Al-Rahim. It's executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Aziz Aisham, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>